This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a, a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome PGA Tour Champions player John Rieger to the Sub-70 podcast. Uh, John, looking forward to the conversation today, and thank you for taking the time to join us. Absolutely, Jason. I appreciate you having me on your show today. Well, I saw some comments from uh, multiple uh, Champions Tour players over the last couple months on accessibility of the Champions Tour, and, and I saw you posted it as well, and there's kind of a common theme. So I, I figured we'd get to this uh, out of the, the gate, and we'll definitely talk about some other stuff. But it's it's sort of uh, the way I understand it is is how does really good play get out on the Champions Tour? How does it get more accessible to some of the guys who have maybe even won in the past or not have it so closed off, for lack of a better word. Like you finished sixth at Q School, and it's it's essentially, if I understand this right, sixth really doesn't do a whole lot versus finishing 20th, correct? It's that hard to get exempt status out there. Sixth and 78th are the same. No difference. No difference. So then when you're looking at this, and, and I'm assuming you've thought about this, what idea or how would you have it set up in a perfect situation for a change or a fix to, to maybe get some of the players who are playing really well, and for lack of a better word, an opportunity a little bit easier to showcase their talents and play in the Champions Tour and have a little bit more variety than what we you know, kind of see every week? And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm assuming that's kind of the angle you're going at with this. Well, actually, uh, four years ago, myself, Greg Kraft, Marco Dawson, uh, all approached the tour about this same subject, and they and we proposed that we do away with tour school and play more spots on Monday. I, uh, so the tour said, "Well, you know, give us some names." So we had 115 signatures from players that are in the position that I'm in, players that are fully exempt. Everybody agreed. You know, this is a way better format to go instead of going to tour school and playing for five spots and then you know two years ago we had uh more spots on monday than we do now but they've cut it down to four now but uh and the tourists like well if if if, you, if that's what everybody wants we don't have a problem with that so we had 115 signatures took it presented it to the tour and there they came back and said well we've already sent applications out for tour school we can't do it now that was their excuse. And what people, what the general public doesn't realize is, you know, there's no way for a guy that has – I played the PGA Tour for 15 years, but I wasn't a superstar. I was a journeyman. But I made a good living, and, and all I ever heard was play better. Well, that's all I've done since I've been on the Champions Tour, but it doesn't matter because everything is going off of what players did 20, 30 years ago has nothing to do with present day. How many spots would be ideal for that Monday? And then would there still have to be a pre-qualifier in that or that open more spots up? Like, so when Doug Barron this year had to like double qualify, which makes the story even crazier, how, how would you address pre-qualifying and how many spots in a perfect world in your eyes would you want to see open on a Monday? Well, 
going back to Doug Barron, Doug Barron had to give up his tour membership so he could teach at TPC Southland. That was right. another thing the tour did to him. He should have never had to pre-qualify in the first place. I mean, the guy just finished fourth or fifth or whatever he finished at the British o- Senior British, his first event, and then he goes and has to pre-qualify and then wins the tournament. So I'm glad that he shoved it up the tour's ass. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I never understood, especially with. I mean, let's let's you know, let's be honest. It's not me out there trying to pre-qualify. Wouldn't basis of what do you play a couple hundred PGA Tour events? Wouldn't that? I was always curious of why the hell did he have to pre-qualify with his for lack of a better word, pedigree or history on the PGA Tour. He was out there for 12 years. Absolutely. I mean, the whole, look, the PGA Tour, I don't think the uh, Commissioner Monaghan even knows what goes on on our tour, to be honest with you. Uh, A lot of the things they do are done by the policy board and the PAC members, but there's nobody from our category that's on the pack or on the policy board. And all they've done is take, they've taken nine spots away from this category over the last four years now. I mean, we used to play for five spots at the school, six through 12 earned uh, conditional cards, but they were always first on the alternate list. So like finishing six, like I did this past week, with Shane Birch not turning 50 until May, March, whenever his birthday is, I would have played until he turned 50. Gotcha. The same thing happened. The same thing happened my first year. I qualified. My birthday wasn't until June. Esteban Toledo got to play. Well, he won at Houston that year, and he was exempt the rest of the year. So, you know, some of the changes they made, they're never going to make any changes for the betterment of the category that I play out of. And there's a lot of guys that are in my situation that are really good players that aren't getting an opportunity. When you do win out there, so like on the, when you won in 2013, are you exempt then through 13-14, or is that just I mean because you're going to be exempt because you won from the money list? Odds are. So is that a is it a one year exemption post that season? Is that how that works? Back when I won. When I won in Seattle, that was in the last week of August. So I ended up finishing top 30 on the money list, only playing in 12 events. But if I wouldn't have finished in the top 30, I was only exempt until the tournament that I won the previous year. Okay. You don't even, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they've they've made so many. The problem is, I mean, I talked to the people with a tour at the first playoff event this year in Richmond. It's not a tour, so that's the first thing. It's an exhibition. It's not a tour because if it was a tour, they would be like every other tour in the world and they would go off of what you're doing now, not what you did 20 or 30 years ago. The only tour in the world that doesn't go off the current how you're performing now. Correct. Correct. In in so how many spots on a Monday would be ideal in your in your situation? Then would that would there be just a larger field for that tournament that week? Would it be up to 15, 20 players get in on Monday? Like where would you ideally see that at? Well, I mean the the way it's currently set up now, I mean we would be lucky if we could get all the nine spots, five from the school and four from Monday to play on Monday. I mean nine spots, you know, would be good. You know, if the guy has never played on the PGA Tour, the Champions Tour, the Corn Ferry Tour, 
those are the guys you send to a qualifying school, have those qualify and take the top whatever, yeah, yeah, 25, yeah. 30, it, it doesn't matter, and let them go to qualifying school in order to go to the Monday qualifier. Yes. I don't care if there's 150 guys every week. As long as you have more spots. You know, I, I it, the last four years, you know, I've played, I've probably won a very few guys, I mean, outside of Doug Barron who won, but I don't know anybody else that's even making money. I've played in 22 tournaments the last four years, and I've made $520,000. That's not even a full season. Twenty-two events. Yeah, and I was actually gonna. I mean, we can. I was gonna. This is in my notes, but I was gonna. I mean, your your season you had is actually really damn good. When I was looking at the stats and what you did, and what you played like in what six events, and you made the playoffs, correct? Or close to the playoffs. That's the second time I made. God, I made the playoffs. The first year of the playoffs, I played in seven events and made the playoffs that year in 2016. So twice in the last four years, I've made the playoffs, and and everybody else is playing 15 to 20 something events. But the playoffs are just the playoffs are just a sham. It doesn't it doesn't do anything for me other than getting in the playoffs and having an opportunity one more week. Like at Richmond this year, I had to finish fourth place in order to move to the second round. And if you finish top 54, you're going to get, you know, I would get in probably, if I'd have finished 54th, I probably would have got in 12 to 15 events maybe. I don't know how it's going to shake out because everybody, you know, that uh, they got all these categories and they just shuffle them around to get who they want into the tournament. So by finishing in the playoff run for this year and where you finished in Q school this year, you really didn't move up the list at all. Essentially, I'm thinking out loud here while I'm talking. So you didn't move up the list at all from those performances where you're going to have even 15 or 12 guaranteed starts next year. I think the only guaranteed start I have is probably the senior PGA because I finished seventh there, but I don't even know about that. But, no, I don't. Doing what I did this past season in that tour school got me zero. That's crazy. Nothing. You think there would be and some tier be... system on that? You really would, right? Like there is, okay, we, we're we going to give you this category a reasonable amount. I mean, you finished sixth out of all those. I mean, if you ever just looked at the first stage of PGA Tour Champions Qualifying School, there's recognizable names just through through first stage. I mean, the, to run the gauntlet to get one of the five spots is, oh, man. I mean, that's got to be the hardest. It's got to be the hardest tour in the world to get out on. I, I, I just find it like just from a golf fan standpoint, it crazy how if you can finish you know sixth through fifteenth, how they don't give those players who obviously are playing well opportunities for letting good play take care of their own things. Twelve starts, fifteen starts, a reasonable amount of starts to get some momentum and get into the tournament golf thing. Like for you to finish where you did on the money list, I know that's hard because it's hard to get a rhythm. It's hard, you know, right? You're you're it's not the flow of like how you guys normally want to do it. So I also have to imagine random starts isn't the easiest thing in the world to do to build momentum and kind of get a good, solid overall season. Well, to put it into perspective, there's probably going to be about anywhere from 10 to 12 guys ahead of me on the alternate last year, or I mean for next year on the alternate list, that 
are going to get in tournaments that did not make the playoffs, did not go to tour school, they don't go to Monday qualify, but yet they're always going to be up there on the alternate list because of what they did in their career on the PGA Tour. I understand that, but and I accept the fact that I have nothing against any of the players. It's just the system. But if you're not making an attempt to go and play, then why should a guy be on the alternate list ahead of a guy that is trying to to play and goes to tour school, goes to Monday qualifiers, does everything, and then plays well when he gets in and you get nothing? That would be like, that would be like Michael Jordan deciding he wants to come out and start playing for the Charlotte Bobcats. Well, because of Michael Jordan, who he is, he would say, they would say, all right, that's fine. But he would play a half a dozen games and be like, I'm not competitive anymore. I'm going back and I'm going to be an owner. It's beyond me. These guys have nothing else better to do. That's all they've done. And, but they're getting handouts every year. And I'm not going to name names, but there's a lot of guys that have had handouts for a long time because of what they did years ago. And our tour is the only tour in the world. It's the only sport in the world that means more what you did years ago than what you're doing right now. That's the, that's the hardcore truth. What's your thoughts? And I've, I've talked to Sean about this. And to be honest, this was ignorance on my side as well. I assumed if you won a major, he would at least get one or two years, you know, when he turned 50 to go play. What do you think about a guy like that situation where he's won a major championship, played on tour a long time, he's struggling like, I mean, I saw he's at Q School, I know I think he's injured or something to that extent. I mean, he's trying. Do you think if you've won a major championship on the regular tour, there should be some more uh, credence put into that to give him some starts as an example of something like that? Well, they used to they used to have a category for that, but they they did away with it. The reason everything was changed back in 2016 was because Tim Petrovic was coming out on tour and he had 15 million in career earnings, but he had only had one win, and you had several guys that that came you know that played the tour back in the 80s before the Tiger money came along, and they're like, look, you know, this guy won one time, but he's got $15 million in career earnings. It's skewed because he was playing for more money mm-hmm. than what I did, what I was winning. And I understand that. But you don't give a guy a lifetime on the Champions Tour because of what you did, you know. Giving a guy that won a major a year to come out, I don't have a problem with that. But to give a guy a whole career because of what he did, went in four or five or six, seven tournaments 25, 30 years ago, there comes a point to where you're like, all right, enough is enough. Yeah. Our tour's gotten older because of the system. Right. We don't have any young guys. So how would you, without naming any names, we're not going to do that. But if you've got a, I'm just going to pick a random number. you got a guy with one major and ten wins, and he was on the PGA Tour forever. How long? Well, my first question is: How long is that exi- that player exempt for on the Champions Tour? Is it literally until they want to they want to quit playing? Like they could be sixty six years old, not as competitive until they die. They could go out there until they they could play it to forever. 
Pretty much so. I mean, you know, like John Daly. John Daly's won two majors, I think three tournaments on the PGA Tour. John Daly was having to play on sponsors' exemptions because he couldn't get in because of the way they have it structured, and John Daly didn't have the career money, and so they have a points list for what you did on the tour. A major counts for so many points. I don't. I think it's two points. A regular tournament's one. And so he didn't have enough points to be eligible for that category. And he didn't have the career money. He didn't have Champions Tour, you know, enough wins on the Champions Tour to fall into that category. So John Daly, who is the tourist, put John Daly on his back. That's it. that's our draw, right, right, right. John Daly. It seems crazy of him not playing in the Champions. Like he is like a perfect Champions Tour golfer at this point, right? Name recognition, bombs it still. People want to go see him. Like, that's a great draw for the tour. Well, and, and like I said, he has to play on a sponsored exemption. But, you know, the simplest cure to it all, and like I said, it's not a tour. It's an exhibition. So it's all about name recognition for the pro-amps. And I call bullshit on that because when I first came out, I hit it farther than anybody on the tour. And unless Fred Couples was playing in the tournament, I was usually picked first in the pro-amps. I'd go to the tee. I was like, how'd you guys get stuck with me? Oh, well, we picked you first. I'm like, well, how come? Because all the other players said that you hit it the farthest. So they don't want to play with somebody that they're going to hit it by. They want to see somebody that can hit right. it. Right. They want to see somebody who hits it like a pro, right? And, but the tour thinks they got to have the Hall of Famers, you know, guys that had a long, successful career on the PGA Tour. But in all honesty, the only reason that that this tour is around was because of Nicholas and, and all those guys. And even before Jack came to the champions tour, that was their retirement. Right. But they had almost 40 events back then. They didn't even have enough players. That's why they cut the schedule in half was because they didn't have enough players to fill the field. I mean, guys 50 years old plus can't play 40 weeks a year, but what made this tour click and get recognition were the guys like Tom Morgo, Dana Quigley, Bruce Flesher, you know, guys that weren't superstars but then came out on the Champions Tour and started winning and winning a lot. And that's the reason that this tour evolved into what it did. It's, David Toms doesn't need the money from the Champions Tour for his retirement. David Toms has made 40-something million dollars. Ernie Els doesn't need the money. It's so it's not a tour. If it was a tour, they would be taking the guys straight off the money list, and that would be it. And you would you would have a very, very strong competitive field every week, just like the PGA Tour. And every player wants to play for as much money as they can play for. Well, I promise you, if you had 78 guys out there that could play, the tour could go to sponsors and say, hey, we want to play for more money. But when you're putting out players in a tournament that shoot at the Players' Championship, which is our tournament and a major, and I was first alternate and didn't get in, and I'm not going to name a name, but people will be able to look it up, but a player shot 53 over par in the Players' Championship this year. And to me, that makes the tour look really bad. I commend the player for even signing his card and posting the number because 
you know, if I was hurt or something and did that, I sure wouldn't post 53 over four. I mean, that takes a lot of balls. But what I'm saying is it makes the tour look really bad that you got a guy playing in a major shooting 53 over four. So I'll, uh, just from, an, from the other side of the coin on this, let's say, why do you think the PGA – I mean, it's sort of self-evident. So without, like I said, without naming names, let's take a big name who played in the 80s and 90s, whoever imagine that might be. I'm assuming the argument of why they do this is they think, I'm not saying right or wrong, but they think the brand recognition of having player X still out there out trumps really great competitive golf. That That's the only rationale I could see for this, right? And then when you're out there playing, how much difference do you see from the fan base and that stuff of recognizable name A, that it still brings to the tournament, even though they're not as competitive as they used to be, but it's still a household name for golf fans. So I can see where the tour is trying to go with that a little bit, but it sounds like from your standpoint it might be a little bit overdone. And, and how important do you still think those players are who might not be as competitive, but like I said, it's brand recognition. How important is that to that tour in your opinion? I don't think it's important at all. I think it's, you know, everybody loves a story. Scott Perrell's a story on our tour. Scott Perrell never played the PGA Tour. He went through Monday qualifying, got his card out there. Everybody knows who Scott Perrell is now. I agree. He's a name. I mean, he wins. He plays good every week. He's a name. So he's a draw for the Pro-Am because of the story. There's a story there. Nobody gives a rat's ass about what somebody did 20, 30 years ago. And to be honest with you, I've played with a lot of guys in the pro-ams that tell me that, you know, because I usually have to play in two, so the day before or the, you know, they played with somebody and then they tell me, oh, well, we played with so-and-so. I'm like, well, how was that? Did you have fun? They're like, no, not really. You know, because, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, they're going to be the super nice guy and everything, and that's not usually what the case is. And then for that tour to work, that ha- I mean, I don't care what your if you've won fifty majors, you on that tour, I imagine you have to be user friendly to the people that you're playing with in those pro rams. I mean, that's just a part of that 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 job. I well, the guys that are the guys that are coming out now, you know, the older older guys that are in their sixties, they do a really good job. You know, I've had issues out there. I've I've had a guy that complained that I didn't talk to him, which I really didn't, but I talked all, you know, probably was one of the better programs I had, but this guy was just, you know, it's just me and him didn't clash at all, and I got written up because the guy wouldn't complain because I didn't entertain him, and yet it was probably one of the best programs that I ever did, and we had a different commissioner back then, and I pilled it, and the guy used to be, worked for Tiger Woods Foundation, and I told him, I said, okay, so Tiger plays in these programs. He never talks to these program partners, hardly ever. I mean, the guys on tour hardly ever interact with their amateur partners because they're on the PGA Tour. They're a superstar, and these guys are just happy to be walking down the fairway and getting to watch them. Right. Our tour, our tour is a little different. Our tour, they make a lot of money off the programs, and that's a big part of our tour. And so we have to entertain the guys. But the guys that are coming out now, they've made so much money, and you're going to tell them that they got to go play in two programs. You know, it's a grind, you know, especially if we do tee times. It's six and a half hours with four new friends two days in a row. 
makes for a long week, you know, and you can only talk to somebody for so much, right? you know, and not everybody clashes, you know, I mean, you're going to go into a room full of people and there might be 10 people there and there might be eight people that you get along with great, your person, but there's an odd person that you just don't get along with or whatever. And so you don't talk to them as much, but they go and complain, you're going to get written up. Which is not fair. I'm with you on this, <clears throat> on this, right? But I'm a golf nut, so I loved it. Like, especially being an Illinois guy, when Tom Wargo came out and kicked the shit out of people and won majors, like that was cool, right? I remember when Larry Loretti won when I was uh, a kid. You know, won a U.S. Senior Open as a club pro. Like, I loved these stories, but I always wonder because I'm have a golf company and I host a. I mean, I'm so into it. Am I in the minority? But I'm with you. Like, I would love to see guys having like the Bruce Fleischer 2.0 career where they came out and kicked the crap out of people. I, I loved it. I loved it when these guys would just come out hungry and ready and they were going to essentially have a second act of really great play. I'm with you on this. I would, and I've talked to Neil Lancaster about this. I've talked to McKeel about like I want to see really great play in the Champions Tour because I love the guys out there. I mean, these are the guys I grew up idolizing and watching play golf when I was in high school and college. And now they're playing on the Champions Tour. But I would, I would love to see a higher competitive, better product. Not that there's not great players out there, because there is. But I would like to see deep fields and uh, a more competitive environment with some different names up there and, and have some new stars for that tour. I don't th- I'm with you. I don't think it would hurt one iota. And you'll still get enough of brand recognition from the guys who will be out there. But... It seems like it's weighted too much on that one side at this point to make it the best product it could make. So, you know, Absolutely. I, I can make the other but argument, like but I'm with you on this. I would love to see a better, more competitive Champions Tour. Well, I mean, it's like I was first alternate at Newport Beach this year, and I didn't get in. And I've got a good friend that played Major League Baseball, Chuck Finley, that I stay with every year. So I was there until... Friday when everybody teed off. So a good friend of his had a corporate tent at the tournament on the 17th hole, par three. So that's basically where all the spectators are on Sunday. And they asked me to come over and hang out in the corporate tent and, you know, smooze with his clients and everything. So I did it. So Fred Couples comes through. Fred Couples is, he's the man as far as drawing a crowd, right, on our tour. There was about 15 people following these groups. So, I mean, if Fred Couples has only got 15 people in Newport Beach following him around, something's wrong. Because mm-hmm. that should be, uh, I mean, as a golf fan like that, I'd watch Freddie play up close, right? I always said, like, you, you can, it's pretty crazy of how much access you can get in the Champions Tour, see some really great golf up close and not have to fight 9 million people to watch a pro kind of go about their business of playing golf, right? Of how do they look at the shots? You can really see it up close from a fan standpoint. It's, it's great if you want to see how professionals play up close, but you might be right there, right? I mean, that might tell you something. One would assume there would be hundreds of people following the Freddie group. I mean, who doesn't want to go out there and see Freddie, right? I mean, golf fans do. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, the. I mean, I've played with Daly a few times. I've played with him at Boca the first tournament of the year this year. and You know, probably we probably had the biggest group of anybody the day that I played with him. You know, I mean, they're not – you don't have hordes of people following Bernhard Langer around. I mean, uh, 
you know, when I first came out, I mean, I, this is my seventh year now, which is hard to believe. It seems like yesterday I was just starting, but, you know, everybody kind of got tired of Bernhard winning all the time. You know, I mean, when you, when you really sit down and look at the, when you look at the field list, which I did before, you know, I kept an eye on this tour before I came out. One of my good friends came out here and really played good, made a ton of money. He's in the same boat as me now even though he's won a major and five tournaments on that tour. He's in he's in my situation now because more and more guys come each year and it knocks guys out. Uh, but it's not a tour. And I, I, I keep saying that, it's not a tour. But you can look at the field list, which I did before I started, and you can put out half of the field. All right, they have no chance at all of winning the golf tournament. None. Then you take the other half, all right? Well, then half of those guys probably aren't going to play, have their A game, you know, that week. So now you've cut it down. There's only about 12 to 15 guys each week that can even win. Well, I believe that. Yeah, I mean, the evidence is kind of there. It's Like I said, that's what I had Doug Barron on the podcast and talked. Like, that's the best story of the year, in my opinion, on the Champions Tour. That's my favorite story. Yeah. Well, like I said, I, I, I think with what the Tour did to him, making him have to go pre-qualify, like I said, it's the best story out there. I, I agree. Well, I want to get to your win on the Champions Tour. Um, big moment, you know, It's uh, you had some big names chasing you. How, how, looking back at that, what's that victory mean to you and, and what's sort of your memories of that week and, and kind of getting it done on Sunday when the pressure was on? Well, I mean, looking back on it now, it didn't do anything for me, but at the time, you know, I mean, it was probably, I, I've won everywhere around the world on every tour except for the PGA Tour. So uh, it was a big moment at the time. Looking back on it now, it didn't mean anything. I can't even get a sponsor's exemption at that tournament. I've needed an exemption there the last four years. In the first two years, I couldn't even get the tournament director to return a call or even send me a respond to my letter. So that kind of shows you how our tour runs. It's that's how it is. And as far as that day going against, you know, those guys kicked my butt for 15 years out on the PGA Tour. My game has gotten better every year, and currently my game right now is probably better than it's ever been. I'm pretty fortunate. I'm, I'm tall, thin, athletic. I haven't really lost any distance. I can still fly at 290. You know, when I first came out, I could fly at 300, but 290 at 56 is pretty good. That'll that'll work. But my whole game is better across the board. I mean, that's why it was very frustrating that I didn't make it at the school because I know how I'm playing, and I feel like, you know, I'd have made over a million dollars next year. It's not about the money. You know, I'm just I'm very competitive. I mean, the money's just a, a luxury that comes with it. And when I when I had the opportunity to win in Seattle, I was playing with with Bernhard and Tom Lehman. And you know that year when I came out in June, Bernhard played the last group on Sunday every tournament. So I don't even know how many times he won that year, but I mean he played unbelievable that year. And so. And I knew that he was going to make a run at me, which he did, and I just kind of was plodding my way around. And then uh, 
he kind of faltered a little bit on like the 13th or 14th hole and I took advantage of it. And then John Cook was playing well ahead of me and Billy Ray Brown kept saying, oh, well, Cookie just birdied 16 and then Cookie just birdied 18 and he was a couple holes ahead of me. So every time he told me that, I made a birdie. And I didn't, you know, look, there's no pressure when you win in a golf tournament. The only pressure is self-inflicted, in my opinion. I mean, it's not like they're going to run over and tackle me or throw it at my head or something like that, you know. I mean, the pressure is put on from within. And I was calm. I was playing well. And, you know, that was actually the last tournament before they had the so-called reshuffle back then. So if I didn't play good that week, I wasn't even going to be playing the rest of the year. So I had more at stake for that than you know, playing well in the tournament so I could continue to play the last five events of the season. And I've always been a good closer. I I, I don't choke. Uh, you know, it's like tour school last week. I birdied three out of the last four holes. Birdie the last hole probably hit the best shot I've ever hit in golf, especially in that situation. I've, just, I've always rise to the occasion. It's just I don't get in that position enough times, you know. But the moment doesn't get too big. It's, you've won all over the world. Like it's, it's, you've done this before. You know how to get it done. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, when I have a chance to win, you know, somebody might beat me, but I'm not beating myself. And I'm not generally hitting bad shots. I mean, it's like at SAP this year, I Monday qualified. I was 71st on the money list. I had to get in that tournament, I thought, in order to get in the playoffs. It took top 72. And... I didn't even play that good in the qualifier. I got in the playoff and I made it. Get in the tournament. Now I gotta think I gotta, you know, you don't know where you're standing for that. And I was playing with, with Freddie Couples and, uh, Miguel Jimenez the last day. And I mean, I'm grinding, grinding, grinding. And we finally finished on the last hole. And Freddie goes, wow. He goes, I kept watching the board all day. He goes, I didn't realize that you weren't in the playoffs. So I was like, Fred, I've only played six tournaments this year. He goes, how come? I was like, cause I can't get in. He goes, really? I mean, this guys like that don't even know. Right. Like Mark O'Meara came up to me. He goes, how come you're not playing more? I was like, Mark, I can't get in tournaments. They've changed everything. Those guys like that, they have no idea because they're playing until they die if they want. So they have no idea how the tour is structured. And they look at it like, you tell me that you're not eligible to play out here the way you play? And I'm like, no, I'm not. When you when you played the, the PGA Tour, you had you know two hundred. Looked at the stats, two hundred twenty four starts. You played over like a twenty year period. What was the biggest difference in top level professional golf that you sort of saw between your start and then in you know at the at the finish of it of how the game kind of changed over that period of time? Well, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, the tour changed when Tiger came along. Tiger changed the game totally. I mean, you see all these young kids now, they're in the gym working on their body, doing everything, and then you throw in the fact that the equipment, you know, I mean, the driver heads are so big, it's, it's like a tennis racket. As long as you can hit it somewhere, it's, it's and the ball doesn't curve, it's, it's, it's taking a lot of talent out of the game in some respect. I mean, but... These young kids, I mean, all these young kids, I play with kids that are 16, 17. It's ridiculous how far they hit it. 
and it's just, uh, you know, there's just more information. I mean, there's, there's girls on the LPGA tour. There's kids on the corn Ferry tour. There's a couple guys on the PJ tour that have learned to play golf from watching YouTube videos. Yes. It's crazy. I learned, I was self-taught. I was self-taught. I was a baseball player. I played every sport. Golf was my worst sport. Golf was, a, it was an afterthought for me. And I was self-taught. I got on, you know, I went to college. I was an All-American. I was on a really good team. We were ranked second in the nation behind Houston my senior year. And, you know, when I started focusing on golf, I got really good. But I was self-taught. I mean, I would read and I would look at pictures and, you know, always wanted to know, well, why why does this work and why doesn't this work? You know, I wanted to know why. So I was always secret and so when i was on the tour i was always searching i didn't and then i lost my card and then i got back on it in 98 and then i played for uh a long time you know in the early 2000s my last year was 2008 but i had injuries you know i had shoulder surgery on both shoulders i had hand surgery it's like every time it's i was getting over the hump and was doing really well i'd get hurt and I just, I, I practice so much. I mean, now I don't even practice. I'm living back where I grew up in Illinois. It's cold, rainy. And I was last year, I was deer hunting three days before the qualifier in Boca. I hadn't even played a round of golf in a month and a half and went down and shot 66 in the qualifier. <laughs> That's crazy. You think, like, I, you're, I think I can imagine your full swing being, you know, coming back to you pretty quick. I always thought to be tournament ready with the little shots, the chipping, the putty, and essentially the 100 yards and in, that takes that takes work. Or is it is it so ingrained in your swing at this point that it that even comes back pretty quick? Well, you know, people will say there's muscle memory. The only muscle memory that there is is in your brain. That's the muscle that has the memory. Your biceps and your triceps and your forearm, those muscles don't remember anything. And it's all technique. It's being able to read the lie, and that's basically all. It's like riding a bike. The golf swing, I've, I've broken the golf swing down over all these years, and I've, I'm teaching a few guys on tour right now, and and I can help a 20 handicap or I can help a tour. I mean, obviously, tour players are, are harder to work with, but they're also easier to work with. But the improvements are so minimal that it takes a little longer for it to click, but Honestly, the golf swing is so easy; it's hard. In, in what in, in the in the grand scheme of what we're all trying to do, in other words, you think they've made it too complex over the years of the motion for a proper swing? Well, you know, I mean, all the new teachers and everything—it's all about the biomechanics and all that stuff. And in my opinion, some of the stuff that they're coming out with is not correct. But these guys that are coming up with this stuff are doctors and scientists and they're they're way smarter than I am when it comes to stuff like that so it's kind of be hard for me to argue my case but I can teach it and I can do it so I must know something those guys that are trying to teach they can't play well and that that's it's, it's an interesting point you made cuz I had Bradley Hughes on the podcast and this is before a little bit before um oh, what's his uh what's his name just won almost three in a row. Brendan Todd. Todd. you know. And he was talking about, he really thinks the best teachers, when you're teaching pros, 
you know, Bradley Hughes played uh, around the world as on a president. Absolutely. He's a world-class yep. player. He thinks it has some real validation that it's not just knowing it, that it's actually doing it and understanding where the player comes from and having essentially that credibility, i.e., you know, Butch Harmon won on tour, right? Butch was a former tour player. Like having that volume of work or that sort of credibility he thinks helps, when I was talking to Bradley about it, makes him even a better teacher. And, like, you know, obviously he was starting Absolutely. to get some credibility before the Brendan Todd thing happened, but he, he thinks it, it really, really helps. It sounds like you're saying the same thing, that of, of having that volume of work gives you even a better understanding, even if you're a 20 handicap or if you're teaching a tour player. Absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, when I first got on tour, man, I soaked up all the information I could. You know, I talked to Lee Trevino. I mean, who would you really listen to? Some guy that's never hit a golf shot or made a putt for a hundred thousand dollars, or would you rather talk to somebody that's done it, been there? Yeah. I mean, you can. And, and the amazing thing with golf is you can always learn something from somebody if you know what to look for. You know, that's that's the interesting thing. You know, there's a lot of teachers out there, and I'm friends with a lot of them. I've worked with a lot of those guys in the past. I don't work with them now. Uh, you know, it's it's easy for them to sit there and look at video and look at numbers and everything like that. But the difference, I think, that a player or somebody that played, you know, everything in golf is situational. You know, what shot you're hitting or, right. you know, what you're thinking. And, you know, those guys don't know what it feels like. To, you know, like the shot I hit on the last tour at tour school. Those guys have no clue. What it's like to have 186 over water, the pin five left from water, 193 to the hole into the wind, and you know you got to make birdie. Now, I wasn't thinking golf swing, all right? Right. You're, you're... I wasn't thinking, you know, I wasn't trying to get it into a position or anything, you know. And, you know, it's one of the best shots that I've ever hit for the situation. And I knew I had to do it. Now, some people would say, well, you had nothing to lose. So, yeah, that shot's a lot easier. Well, no, it's not because if I don't make birdie, I have no chance. Right. And I did make birdie. So, obviously, you know, the pressure I put on myself was tremendous in that situation. And as a player, becoming a teacher, that's what Butch brought to the table to everybody. I know Butch really well. I lived in Vegas for 20-something years, and I before that I lived in Houston, and Butch was in Houston at Lock and Bar. I've known Butch for the better part of 30 years. And that's what Butch brought to the table, especially when Tiger came along and then when they split up. And you're going to tell me that a young kid that, even though he was an All-American on in college, coming out on tour and he's, and Butch Harmon's going to work with you, and he walks up and says, man, you're swinging at it great. How come you're not winning out here? You know what kind of confidence that gives a young kid? Mm -hmm. When Butch Harmon says, man, your swing is great. That takes – I've seen it take three players that are superstars now to a different level just by Butch saying that. It's not like their golf swing changed. Well, I've often wondered how much of Butch's thing is just playing psychologist to – Right of of giving players confidence and uh, just being in, around him and everything he's seen and the advice he can give, right? Because he certainly has a wide variety of players with a wide variety of different swings. He always seems to get the best out of them without 
changing a ton of stuff. You kind of like tighten stuff up a little bit, it seems like. But, boy, there must be a lot of – well, you would know more than I would be, but there has to be a lot of really good – he's a hell of a coach, and I mean a coach from a psychological standpoint, too. He has to be to keep getting all of this out of these players. 99%. 99%. And it doesn't help. It doesn't help that you're working with some of the best players in the world on top of it. I mean, anybody would, you know – I mean, it'd be like me teaching you, and you go out and you start dominating the tour. I'd be the best teacher right, in the world, right? You know, but don't don't place your bet but on it that did, one. It, <laughs> but it didn't hurt the fact that he, you know, that he worked with Greg Norman, right. and and then Tiger Woods started working with him because Greg Norman was number one in the world, and you know, the work that him and Tiger put in, and the way Tiger swung at it in two thousand, there will never, ever, ever be anybody duplicate what Tiger Woods did in the year 2000. It's the best golf ever. I ever saw for power and accuracy. I, I can't think of one yeah. any better. It was, I mean, I was shocked when he changed it, but I always thought that year, that golf swing was the best combination of accuracy and power I've ever seen in one golfer. It was, it was in, what was he hitting, 70-some percent of the fairways and then averaging 300 yards back then. I mean, it's insane, you know, with that equipment. It was that accurate and that long. It's yeah, I mean, like I said, and it's Butch works with the best, but boy, he he's he from talking to guys and stuff, he seems to get a lot out of them, and it's uh, there's something in that sauce he's working with there, that's for sure. Absolutely. Uh, I was going to ask you too. I was looking at your bio, and you said uh, at some point you would love to be an architect. So I'm going to put ask you to put your golf architect hat on here a little bit. What, in your opinion, makes for a really good or great golf course, and what things can can take a good golf course architecturally and make it bad from all the years you've been playing around the world and on tour? Well, I mean, look, the best golf courses in the world are in Ireland and Scotland. And I think that's one reason that the Europeans over the last, what, 15, 20 years now have pretty much dominated the Ryder Cup is because of the style of golf courses. Every every golf course that you go to in the United States, unless you're at your local beauty, and even then, depending on what part of the United States you're in, you know, it's too soft, too green, you know, carry it here. You know, they learn to play all kinds of golf over there, play it on the ground, play it in the air, you know, play it in wind. Golf in the United States, is it's not... It's not about golf. It's about selling houses. And, you know, the the golf courses, you know, need to be faster and firmer. I mean, if they want the scores to stop being so ridiculously low on the PGA Tour, get the courses firm and fast with firm greens, you know, just enough rough where you're catching flyers. That's how the tour was when I first came out in the 80s. Everything was firm, fast. Catching flyers, of course, we were playing with wooden drivers and a lot of golf balls, which was even tougher. But that's the only way that you're going to, you know, keep the scores from being ridiculously low. I mean, look, there's no decision making. The hardest throws on the PGA Tour every year are the drivable par fours because now you're giving a tour player, he has to make a decision. Is he going for it? Is he laying up? You're going to do this. There's no decision making when there's a 520 yard par four. It's a driver, unless you can hit it too far. There's no decision. That's what makes golf hard is when you have to make decisions. 
And when the everything, I mean, look when it rains, how low the scores go. When the when the courses are soft, the scores are going to be low. There's no decision making. You're firing it right at the pin every time. Well, and hopefully, you're not missing as many fairways. Yeah, and as long as those guys are, it's like what they did at Medina last fall, and you know, for us mere mortals, that golf course is brutal, and they're. I mean, taking angles, but the, the the fairways are soft and the pins are soft, so it's it doesn't matter if it's seventy five hundred yards. It's no, it's still driver eight iron. On but the, the hardest, yeah, it's it, they're going to tear the it hard, apart. The hardest, the hardest golf course on the PGA Tour year in and year out, Hilton Head, and yep. it's one of the shortest. I mean, you can hit it in the fairway and not have a shot. You got to be on the correct side of the fairway. Well, and hopefully there's, you know, it's coming back a little bit with what Core Crenshaw started out, Sand Hills in the mid-90s, which is kind of changing, hopefully, golf architecture. Because as an amateur, I like fast and firm conditions. I like, because I don't carry it 300 yards. I carry it, you know, 240 and hopefully a roll out to 255, 260 on a great day. I like it when we have a little bit of fast and firm conditions and you have to think your way around a little bit of not just hitting it from X to Y. I, I, I think a lot of amateur golfers like that ability to have a little bit of speed in the fairway and you know a little brown on your golf course you're speaking my language like i i love how traditional golf courses can have a little bit more width then with that and give you a little bit different angles versus just playing soft green hit it to here hit it to here i think especially like at your home course where you're playing it a lot having those different options where wind or fast firm conditions can kind of make you think about some different golf shots versus the same way of doing it all the time i I hope the trend line keeps continuing to kind of bring a little bit more of the golden architecture design philosophies into golf or back into golf. I think it's I think it's better for everybody. Well, the one thing that I would change, and Lee Trevino said it best, he goes, I could make a fortune if I followed Arnie and Jack around and started up a green, uh, a green construction company because the greens that they design these days are just ridiculous. I don't understand the fact of why, you know, they can make a golf hole and do whatever. But, you know, cut down on the, the, the time it takes to manicure a golf course. Have smaller greens. I mean, you go look at all the old school golf courses, most of them have small greens. Mm-hmm. You know, and you walk off the green, you're on the next tee in 10 steps. Most modern golf courses, you walk off the green, you ride in the cart for a quarter of a mile to get to the next tee. It's all about selling home. Right. No, but, it's, it's, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was for, I was fortunate to grow up where I grew up. Uh, you know, two of my best friends, we've, we've all played professionally for 30 plus years, Kitty Perry and Russ Cochran. The three of us grew up at a municipal golf course in Paducah, Kentucky called Paxton Park. Firm, fast, good Bermuda greens, but as a kid, we grew up learning to hit all kinds of shots. And, Obviously, there was something there because to have three guys from such a small town and a municipal golf course play professional golf for that long was pretty amazing, really. And there's a lot of other good players that are coming out of here now. Um, um, I went brain dead. She uh, she won the, the Women's U.S. Amateur. She's from here. She won the NCAA Tournament at uh, Alabama. I just went brain dead. I can't think of her name. I can picture her face. Uh, she's playing on the LPGA tour now. And there's a couple of young guys playing the Corn Ferry tour and Russ Cochran's nephews was playing out there and, and then his son. But 
you know, there's something to be said, like Bob Friend is a good friend of mine, and he grew up playing at uh, Oakmont there in Pittsburgh. And I remember him telling me a story. He said he went off to college, and he's playing in his first college tournament. He had it four under par through six holes. He goes, I'd never been four under par in my entire right. life. He goes, I didn't know what day. to do. Yeah, well, you're playing that thing yeah. every day. I mean, oh. as a kid growing up on something like that versus most tour players aren't from country clubs. They come from unis or something like that because, you know, you learn to play a lot of different shots. When you grow up on a lush, you know, pristine country club, you're not learning to play all the shots. I mean, because every place, you know, you go play overseas and you go play in the Philippines. I played a course in the Philippines called Whack Whack that was 6,500 yards and the course record was 69. They played the World Cup there back in the day. And... Chevy Ballesteros shot 85. Oh my it God. had the gnarliest grass and the greeniest, the greeniest greens that sloped from back to front. And if you got it above the hole, you could put it off the green. If you were below the hole, you couldn't get it within five foot of the hole. I mean, it was just the craziest golf course, and it was like playing in the middle of a cow pasture. Wow, that's interesting. That, that would that would force a lot of people to the bar quickly, I'm guessing, post-round on that one. Holy cow, would that be frustrating? <laughs> that short in the course record, 69. <laughs> Holy crap. And I played, a, I, played a tournament, I played a tournament there on the Asian Tour, and one under par won the golf tournament. And it's the shortest, easiest golf course you've ever seen, but the worst condition and the craziest greens you've ever seen. It's like they had four different types of grass on the greens. And couldn't have been a better name for a golf course, a golf course called Whack Whack. W-A-K, W-A-K. Well, per, yeah, like I said, that would, uh, I can't imagine the frustration of the best players in the world on something like that. they got to be shaking their heads afterwards of how the hell did I just shoot 77 on 6,500 yards, right? Like, that can't happen. Yet, bingo. I, I want to say, say back in his prime, Lanny Watkins represented the U.S. And I want to say Lanny Watkins. Now, don't quote me, but I want to say he shot 86. Oh, my God. Well, it shows like you but don't I have could, to have I a massive think, length. Now, as far as golf courses are concerned, I mean, there's some good architects out there right now. That Gil Hance, I think, does a great job. Cord Crenshaw. I like a lot of stuff Peter Jacobson and Jim Hardy have done. Uh, they did that golf course down there in Houston where the Houston Open used to be played at Redstone. And that was a heck of a golf course. Is there any in the States that you've played that that stick out of maybe the best two or three just from architectural standpoint that you've gotten to play that you're just like, oh, my gosh, Jason, it's so good and it's so right and it's just a perfect golf course. I could play this every day and be happy out there. Is there any that stick out? There's actually a couple. I mean, obviously, you know, everybody says Pebble Beach. You know, Pine Valley is amazing. There's a golf course in Florida that I could play it every day. It's called Pine Tree. It's in Boynton Beach, Florida. And there's a plaque on the first tee. Uh, Hogan said the best flat golf course in America. It's dead flat. The greens are pushed up. It's 7,700 yards down in Florida. And the, it's right by the ocean. The wind blows. It is one of the hardest golf courses you'll ever play from the tips. I went over and played it one year. A buddy of mine was a member there. And Kenny and Russ and I and our buddy was from our hometown. So we went over and played with him. And I promise you, I probably didn't break 82. It was so hard and it was windy and 
The next day, I go over to the Honda Classic. We're playing at Heron Bay, and I was playing with Neil Lancaster and Grant Waite, and I shoot 63 the first day at 40-mile-an-hour wind. And that's a tough golf course from the backs. Yeah. I mean, where you were playing at, right, to go from not breaking 80 to shooting 63 under tournament PGA Tour conditions shows how the how difficult of the of a track that must have been from the very backs. I probably played that golf course a dozen times before I ever shot par. And then the next time I played there was in the fall versus in the spring, and I shot 62 on it. But it's one of those golf courses every day it plays different. Sam Snead used to hang out there all the time. The 16th hole is a long par five, and the tee box is 157 yards long. And supposedly back in the day, Snead had a standing bet if you were playing with him that you, he bet you $100 you couldn't hit a 7-iron to get it past the front of the tee box. Old Sam probably made a few bucks on that one. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he did. But, I mean, it's it's a golf course probably a lot of people have not heard about. It is one of the best golf courses in the country. Is there still any left on the, the list that you haven't gotten to play yet that you would just love to be able to get out there and, and, and play it and see it that uh, is still uh, still in front of you there a little bit? Uh, I've never played those courses up in uh, – uh, Kohler, Wisconsin, like Whistling Straits, and I haven't been to Abandoned Dunes. I, I don't, you know, I don't really play a lot of golf anymore. I play tournament golf. Um, I'm more, I'm more the old school. You know, I like San Francisco Golf Club. Oh, That's so a great good. golf course. I got to play it. Is, isn't uh, that just the, like the greatest day? Just the walk around there. Isn't it just superb? Yeah, I mean, man, the, what is it the Chili dogs they have there? I can't remember what it is. No, the chili dogs or the hamburger? That's across the street. That's at Olympic. So is that Olympic? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But San, I mean, San you Francisco. know, Chicago, Chicago's got a lot of great golf courses, too. I love Butler National. Man, that was a beast of a golf course. Butler feels like you could, like, essentially have a U.S. Open out there the next day. Like, that thing is set up, like, tournament yeah. condition all the time. Yeah, Chicago's got some great ones with, like, Butler, Chicago, uh, Chicago Golf Club, Shore Acres. Uh, up at that North Shore area, there's some, there's some, we're really lucky around this area. There's some great, you know, private, new school and some old school type clubs in our area. There's such a rich history in Chicagoland for sure. Yeah, I like, I, you know, it's a shame that, you know, Chicago doesn't have a tournament Isn't every that year. Crazy. I, I, like, I, you know, I won, I won on the, uh, I don't even remember what it was called, the Corn Ferry Tour now, but I won there at the Glen Club. Uh, in 2007, I had status on both tours, and I played in that tournament and won it, so I stayed out there and got my card back for the next year. But uh, I love that North Shore Country Club that we played on the Champions Tour. That Great. was a fun little golf to yep. play. Yeah. And I did I did an outing right down the street from there uh, one year and went over, and it was, you know, uh, kids with disabilities and stuff and went out and played nine holes with them. I don't even remember the name of the golf. I've never even heard of it. I mean, it was a hell of a golf course. There's, I mean, they, uh, there's so many good courses around Chicago and New York. You know, you get up up in that Westchester County area. Yep. You know, I mean, if I was, if I was uh, you know, if I was just a Joe Schmo and had plenty of money and was retired, I would definitely either live in New, up in uh, Westchester County or in Chicago in the summer to play golf because I mean you're not going to get any better. Hard, hard to argue me. Uh, hard, hard for me to argue that side of it. Like I said, it's uh, 
there's there's such great courses in like Chicago in the summer if you if you have the opportunity to play it there's so many great courses in the North Shore area and around Chicago land yeah it's we're lucky that uh, there's definitely world class stuff up here uh, other thing I got to ask you because it's in your it's in the news got to ask you on the Patrick Reed deal what's sort of your opinion of of that situation and do you think the the you know media cry of it's over exaggerated or how do you sort of see it as a tour player. Well, I mean, I have a little inside track on the guy because he used to work with my teacher years and years ago. And so, you know, I kind of know a little bit more, you know, than probably a lot of people do. And, you know, I think that, uh, I think a little bit of it, you know, I kind of know him a little bit personally. I think he's a little bit misunderstood. But as far as what he did the other day, you know, that was, I mean, look, everybody knows the rules of golf. I mean, it's not like it was his first tournament. Uh, I, I think he knew what he was doing. I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, look at Billy Mayfair on our tour at the second playoff event. I mean, it was pretty, I played with him, and I've seen a couple things that he's done. You know, I'm not calling out Billy. Billy's a great, good, uh, good friend of mine. And you, you see a lot of stuff, you know, I mean, uh, and it's just a shame that when you see guys, you know, try to bend the rules, you know, sometimes, you know, in the heat of the moment, you know, a guy hits it in the hazard or whatever, and he says, well, my ball went here. I mean, that, you know, that's always kind of a gray area, you know. But, you know, the same thing happened uh, a couple times at Hilton Head, you know. I mean, I remember Sturt Sink hitting it in the waste bunker on 16 at Hilton Head, and, you know, asking the official, can I move this? And, you know, he takes his finger and it looks like he makes a trough right behind the ball. And then I think there was something with Kuchar, but I don't, I don't really remember that. I, but I mean, it was pretty evident that, you know, he knew what he was doing. You know, well, what's your thoughts? I'm not going to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, you can't yeah, feel the sand. It's so light down there beach wise. You can, you can be, Focusing on the lie, and you're kind of trying to get the feel for the shot. And uh, this is my question, like as a follow-up to this, as taking the other side of this, as as a pro, do you think you would feel that sand hit the club, or do you think it's also plausible that in the moment, do you think you'd feel it? Not so much feel it; you'd see it. You'd you know? see it. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I, I played I played with guys on the tour. All right, and you hit it in a you know you hit it in a green side bunker, and he hit the shot out. You know, hits a good shot. And he goes, comes out, says, you know, when I took my club away, you know, I nicked the sand a little bit. It's not that you feel it, you see it. Okay. And he and he calls a penalty on himself. Right. And there's nobody down in the bunker. You know, it's a deep pop bunker or whatever, and there's nobody down there. And the guy comes out and says, hey, I accidentally touched the sand when I took it away. And, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that – I'm not saying he's a cheater. I'm just saying I think he was bending the rules a little bit. You know, if you know the rules of golf, you can use them to your advantage a lot of times. Correct. But I think that he knows the rule, and I think that, you know, he was in the heat of the moment or whatever, and, you know, he kind of takes that little practice swing a lot of the times. Anyway, I saw a video that I guess he did the same thing a few years ago, and the video was a little grainy because and he couldn't really see it, but I guess he did it at the same tournament a few years ago. Correct. Yeah. With that same so, little motion, you know, those little practice swings, right? So, 
Yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't. I'm not. I don't like follow the tour and watch golf on TV. So I don't really, you know, know if that's his routine that he does on every shot. If that's something he does on every shot, then yeah, it could be accidental. I think because of Patrick Reed and him opening his mouth and saying what he did during the Ryder Cup and what he said when he won the World Golf event down at Doral that year. Yep. I think that, you know, having it been somebody else, it might not have been called. You know, I think once you're labeled with a certain stigma out on tour, that's going to follow you. You know, I've got a stigma out there, same thing, because I speak my mind. I, You know, it's like what I'm telling you today about the tour. You know, I'm sure that they're not going to like hearing what I have to say and let the cat out of the bag and how things are run. But you know what? That's just how it is. And I don't hold back, and it's got me in trouble with the tours more than once. Well, well it makes for a great podcast, though, bro. That's the that, that's why I called you. This is perfect, right? Like, I knew we could kind of – because, like I said, this this whole thing was – I was hearing it more and more than ever. I'm like, all right. Um Let's have this conversation because I think it's an interesting topic. So you, like I said, I appreciate your honesty and your opinions. That's the, the best part of having these conversations. Well, there's a bunch of us. You know, we sit around and talk. You know, you know the guys that are affected. You know, like look, if we say this is how it should be, it's not affecting anybody else that's already eligible to play out there. It's only affecting the one category. And if all those guys want the same thing. Why not change it? I, it's just you. making everything better. I I agree, and, and, and like I would always I argue that the best players who've been great, let's say it's the guys who are exempt for life, right? Now they're still competitors, right? They they were really good for a really long period of time. You think they'd want the competition? I'd want the best, right? Give it to me. Like who's somebody who's hot? Let's do it. Let's play. I, I, I think it would yeah, get their well, juices flowing, right? Like, they're still competitors. You guys are all competitors to be at that level and to do it for as long as you did it. I would have to imagine when you played against Longer and that final day and you knew he was coming, you cherished that. You wanted it, right? You wanted to see what the best had, and, and, and let's just see where the chips fall. I have to imagine even those guys in that category would want that. I will, I will throw out a name, okay? And I was playing with him, you know, the year after I won, you get to go to Hawaii and play. That's kind of like a treat. I mean, it's an unbelievable resort. You know, it's like you're over in Hawaii for, you know, I think I was over there for like 12 days. So I'm playing with Peter Jacobson, and we get up on the second hole. And I was like, Jake, how, I was like, how old are you now, Jake? And he's like, I think he told me, I want to say that he was 60. might have been 61, but I don't want to making too old, but, you know, he was, you know, he hadn't been playing for a while, and but he got an exemption to play in that tournament, I think, because he'd won a major on the Champions Tour. And uh, I said, well, how long are you going to play? And he said, well, I'm going to keep playing. As long as, long as I feel like I'm, you know, competitive out here, I'm going to keep playing. So we get around to the ninth hole, and it's a 440-yard par four, just a slight dogleg to the left and into the wind. And, you know, back then I was still pumping it out there pretty good. And I hit one and hit it, you know, I hit it through the wind. I hit it like probably about 320. The fairways were fast, but still I got it out there about 320. And I've got eight iron into the green, and he's back there hitting three wood. And I told my caddy, I was like, I wonder what part of competitive he doesn't understand. 
Yeah, like right. I mean, there's a point where it's not gonna. It's not gonna. He's. It'd be very. He's not gonna to beat win. me hitting three woods. In the, right. He's not gonna beat me hitting three woods in the par fours when I'm hitting eight irons. Right. And I get done with the round, and I'd shot sixty five or sixty six that day, and so I'm inside the locker room. They got a really cool little place for us there to hang out and. Curtis Strange comes walking in. He goes, what the hell did you do to Jake today? I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, he's down there on the range hitting balls. And he goes, he's not stop talking about. He goes, you're the next Bernhard Langer out here on this tour. <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget that because he's like, yeah, as long as I feel like I'm still competitive out here, I'm going to keep playing. And I'm thinking, you're not very competitive when I'm 100 yards by you off the tee. No, it's and, – and, right. So then the question is – and that's where you're saying it's more of a, it's not a tour, it's more of an exhibition because if, if a guy is 60-some years old and get, out getting driven by the guys who are 50 by even 50, 60 yards, you know in the long run that's just not going to work. What, what, is it, what, what is the tour then, right? Is that then half nostalgia that people are out there watching a guy who realistically can't probably win, right? And then is that what oh, the yeah. Is that what's supposed to be, or is oh, that yeah. not what's supposed to be? Like, I don't know. I don't. You know, I think that's maybe the crux of where the champions. Well, tour like is I at. said, it's not a tour. It should be called the PGA Exhibition Event or something. It's not a tour. You know, I mean, you know, when it becomes a tour is when they start taking the best players every week. That then it'll be a tour. Until then, it's an exhibition. I, I hope they get there. I hope your plan. I hope. More spots open, like I said, I do. I really want to see. I like I said, I loved the Champions Tour in the '90s when those guys came out. When I, you know, probably said it nauseum through this, but I would. I'm with you. I want to see. You know, I want to see Cuz get hot, get in a tournament, and and you know, see him competitively playing some really good golf and letting him get in some more tournaments. As an example, like I want to see those some different names out there. And if you're playing good and well, you get in, it would be fun to watch those guys who I grew up watching on the PGA Tour as well, right? I, I, I'm a golf fan, so I watched, you know, a wide variety. It doesn't have to be the same 12 players like you're saying every week for me to be entertained watching it on television or watching it as a well, I, fan. I, I hate to bust your bubble, but in two years, this is what's going to happen. Every player is going to have their own tournament. Jerry Kelly's the host of the tournament in Tucson. Steve Stricker has his tournament. Jim Furyk's going to have his tournament. Ernie Ellis will probably have his name on the tournament in Seattle because he's been representing Boyne for all these years. Mickelson's getting ready to turn 50. He says he'll come out and play if they get more money for first place. What's going to happen is they're going to have less tournaments and everybody's going to have their own tournament. It's going to be like the tournament in Houston where it's an invitational so they can invite who they want to invite. And the fields are going to go down to about 54 players. That's going to happen probably within the next two or three years. Well, from a from a pure golf fan standpoint, I hope it doesn't turn into that because, like I said, I I like seeing competition with it. So, well, I've heard rumors, and usually when you hear rumors out on our tour, they usually come to fruition. So, well, let's. Uh... Let's hope it doesn't come to that, and uh, we can see you guys out there. I got one last one for you, and then I'll, I'll let you get out of Dodge. And like I said, I really appreciate it, Pro, taking the time today. But how did hunting season go this year down in southern Illinois? And are you going to be any, any other trips out west, or uh, are you going to kind of stay down in the southern Illinois, Kentucky area? And what are you kind of going after this year? 
Well, I only hunted a little bit because uh, I knew I had the tour school coming up, so I didn't. I just hunted a little. Uh, I've got a few big deer that I'm hunting right now, and uh, my hunting season really starts now. So I'll probably pretty much hunt every day until the end of the season, which is I don't know sometime around January the 20th usually. So I'm just hoping we get some snow here pretty soon. It's 31 degrees here right now, but. Uh, you know, I, all I do this time of year is hunt and play pool. So, no golf for me. Well, I was going to ask you that, too. Sorry, there's one final, final one. You got to play with the, what did you say it was, we were texting yesterday, the number two billiards player in the world. And what is that like to see up close of, is it is it just literally stupid good at it? Is it, I've never played with a billiards player of that, even close to a level like that. What's that like to, to watch up close? Well, growing up here in the little town that I'm from, uh, Buddy Hall one of the best pool players of all time. He's from here. He's, I'm sitting out in front of the pool room right now, Sully Billiards here in Metropolis. Probably some of the best pool players, any action you want, any time, any day of the week. Uh, Buddy Hall's in here every day. Uh, Skylar Woodward, he's ranked two in the world. He just was second time this year uh, MVP of the Moscone Cup, which is like the Ryder Cup. Um uh, He's been MVP the last two years. This is where he hangs out when he's not out on the road playing. We have the number one junior player in the world that hangs out in here, plus all my buddies that, you know, are pretty good sticks themselves. And, you know, growing up here and buddy living here, every pool player known to man has come through this town. I'm good friends with Earl Strickland, nine-time U.S. Open champion. I mean, I've, I've played pool with all the best players in the world pretty much not today's players but players of years ago you know 20 years ago yep nick barners kim davenport johnny archer uh they used to have a big tournament just north here in johnson city and that was the biggest pool tournament anywhere in the world minnesota fast all those guys a lot of characters but is it is to watch it up close is the skill set sort of like the difference between a good amateur zero handicap golfer and guys like you on tour is it just a night and day difference of a really good player versus seeing it up close and how good those guys truly are oh yeah it's just you know i mean every shot they shoot straight in about a foot and a half i mean they're you know i mean i remember watching buddy he'd set up a shot and say put a piece of chalk wherever you want the cue ball to finish and he'd shoot the shot the cue ball would finish on that spot i mean it's just amazing this skylar woodward is the best I've ever seen. I mean, he shoots shapes like Buddy Hall, can make any shot on the table like Earl Strickland. The kid is only 26 years old. He just won the uh, Space City Tournament down in Houston uh, a couple days ago. He won the whole round. He won the one pocket, won the nine ball. He won every event. And in the nine ball tournament, I don't, he won every match nine to one. Whew. So he, he lost one game to each guy that he played. Like fifteen guys. It's insane. He's phenomenal. I mean, it's like it's like watching Tiger Woods at Pebble Beach in two thousand, watching this kid play pool. Well, every enjoy, day. Well, enjoy it. Uh, thanks so much for your time and, and your opinions. And um, like I said, feel free uh, to reach out anytime you ever want to come on and talk golf. I really enjoyed the conversation. You know, thanks for taking the time and, and best of luck next year when you do get those starts to uh, to make the most of it. We'll be watching and. Uh, like I said, thank you for everything today. I really appreciate it. 
I appreciate you having me on. I think uh, next time, if you want the best show you'll ever have, you get Neil and me on at the same time, be the best show you'll ever have. Oh We've been God. talking about doing a radio show together, and you talk about funny and just talking off the cuff and a lot of different subjects between me and him, all the stories we got. Oh, my crazy. God. I loved having Cuz on. It was one of my, I think we were up to like 90-some podcasts. I've talked to tour players and guys in the industry, and, and Cuz was one of my favorites. Like, first off, he's just a super nice human being to get to know him a little bit, but his stories and just his oh, delivery of them, like, it was legendary. Like, I, I could have talked to him for three hours. He was great. So that would be a uh, fantastic podcast. So I would, I'm all in on that one. Yeah, you'd have to get us both on there and just, you know, just, come at it off the cuff and i'm telling you we'd have you laughing you'd be rolling on the floor and well, all your viewers would be laughing there would be some classics in that one so yeah we might have to do that one though if you guys are both in a champions tour event at the same time or pipe it down i'd love to do that one in person at some point just to get the the vibe of the stories and kind of you know it's always better sitting around with a beer letting the guys go than it is over a you know, a phone or whatnot, but I'm, if we could ever make it work, I'd be completely in on having both you on. It'd be perfect. So thanks again for everything. And, you know, I appreciate it. I'm sure we can make it work. Neil and I are always hanging out on the road together, but he doesn't, he doesn't like going out West. I go to all the qualifiers and he just goes by handful. So. Well, I'll text you both. I got your numbers and uh, we'll see if we can set that up sometime next year of, uh, of a call in with you and Neil on a phone. I, that'd be great. So I'm all in on it. You got it. And if I ever get up to uh, if I get up to Chicago, I'll give you a buzz. Maybe we'll get out and play some golf. Yeah, let me know. We can. I can set something up. I I kind of know quite a few people. And I'm sure like you do as well. So we can get on somewhere good and go tee it up. I would love that. It'd be fantastic. All right. Awesome, Jason. Thanks, pro. I appreciate it. You got it. Have a great holiday. You too.